Many years ago as a camp counselor, I had two boys in my cabin who I'm gonna call Billy and Danny. Now, prior to camp, these two boys had never met each other, but when they first saw each other at camp, it was an instant hate for each other. Every chance they had, uh, they would just go at each other, fists flying, wrestling in the dirt, and it always ended up with Billy dominating Danny, sitting on him and just pounding at him. But uh, there was no quitting Danny, and he would be right back at it. Now, the other boys loved it, and they would gather around cheering on their favorite. And I spent a lot of time just breaking up fights between those two boys, but uh, they just got creative then in choosing where they were going to fight. Later in the week, uh, Billy asked to talk to me. The Holy Spirit was working on him, and he wanted to become a Christian. And as I talked to him, I realized that he wanted to go to heaven, but he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And I told him it doesn't work that way. That in salvation, you're giving your life to Jesus, over to him, making him Lord of your life. And he went away that night thinking about what I said. The next night he was back and he wanted to give his life to Jesus, to make Jesus his Lord. And he did so that night. And the next morning as I was walking up towards the hill, towards the cabin, I could hear the boys yelling and cheering and my heart sank. And yeah, Billy and Danny are back at it again, I thought. But arriving at the cabin, I saw an unusual sight. Instead of Billy on top of Danny pounding on him, Danny was on top of Billy punching him. And Billy was making no effort to fight back. He was just protecting his face with his hands. And as I pulled Danny off, the other boys gathered around and said to Billy, why did you do that? You've proven all week you can beat Danny up. To which Billy replied, he said, last night I gave my heart to Jesus. Yesterday I hated Danny. Today I love him and I will not fight him. That was the last fight they had. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel, if we've experienced it, impacts our lives. Everyone who is born again is changed. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Literally, you're changed when you're born again. So that's what Peter's trying to teach us this morning. As we've been going through Peter, and I've been going through very slow as he's uh, laying down foundational principles. But we're going to move fast now as he's uh, applying those principles. And so as he's been talking about the gospel, Peter says the gospel will do six things for us. And we could dwell on each of these, make a message of each, but we're going to just gather them together today. The first thing the gospel does in uh, verse 13 of uh, 1 Peter 1 is it changes our thinking, it changes our minds. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So I preached a message on that one, so I'm not going to go into that one today, but that's the first change that Peter mentions uh, when uh, we receive the gospel. It changes how we think. The second one he deals with is the gospel changes how we deal with our desires. Sorry, in verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I'm holy. So he says, as obedient children, Peter's talking about your heart attitude. 
Do you have a heart to obey or do you have a heart to rebel? Now it's natural to have a heart to rebel. Rules are made to be broken, right? Tell me that I can't do something and I'll show you. That's the natural person speaking. An obedient child is the one who wants to obey. He or she wants to please, wants to do what is right. And so this is what the gospel does to us. It changes the heart's attitude from I want to rebel to I want to obey. Now I know we struggle with that. But there's still that desire the gospel puts within our hearts. That we want to please God. We want to obey. And it's that inner heart desire that controls all your other desires. In order to get Eve to sin, Satan had to first work on her inner heart's desire. To move her away from I want to please God to I want to have my own way. And once he got her moved to that, then she sinned. And until the gospel changes this core inner desire from I want to have my own way to I want to please God, we will struggle with the rest of what Peter says here. He says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. If our inner core desire is one of rebellion, then we'll find ourselves struggling with always conforming to those evil desires. How can you conquer evil, your evil desires if your inner core desire is to have those things? So the gospel changes that inner core desire. For the world, this is natural. Peter says they're living in ignorance. They may know better, they may not know better, but to an extent... At least Satan has blinded their minds. So they think that what they do either doesn't matter or they even think what they do is good. And so the gospel opens our minds to understand. Many years ago, one evening, a lady called us in the evening asked if her and her sister could, uh, she and her sister could come over. The lady uh, explained that she was a believer she was just in the community visiting her sister, who was not a believer, and she'd been sharing Jesus with her sister. And she said, the interest is there, but she said, my sister just can't quite get it. And I was hoping that if someone else could share the gospel with her, maybe explain it in a little different way, my sister will understand. So we invited them over. <clears throat> and that evening I explained the gospel to the sister, and she didn't accept Christ that evening, but soon afterwards she did. And it wasn't long after that before her and her live-in partner came wanting to be married. They'd been living together for several years and had a couple children. And she started to come to church after that, and later she shared her story with us of why suddenly she wanted to get married. She told us that she'd lived, uh, grown up in a home where her parents promoted sexual freedom. Through her teen years, they uh, promoted her having many sexual experiences with many different people. And uh, they just taught her that this is good, it's healthy. And she said, I didn't realize that there was anything wrong with such a promiscuous lifestyle. I was taught it was good and wholesome. Eventually, she, she settled on one guy and they began living together. And um, 
had a couple kids together and thinking there was nothing wrong with it. But now as a Christian, as she was reading the scriptures, she began to understand what the Bible teaches about human sexuality. And she came under conviction of her own sin. And she repented of that. You see, that's what Peter's saying. At one time we lived in ignorance. But the Bible, the gospel, moves us out of ignorance into understanding what God desires, God's thoughts and God's values. It moves us from living for our own evil desires to living to, or desiring to live holy lives because God is holy. Where we run our thinking and our actions through that filter of, does this bring God glory? Is this holiness? We're actually starting to think, how would God act and think in this situation? The third thing the gospel will do is it changes how we deal with personal accountability. 1 Peter 1, 17 says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now what Peter is saying is, we will be called to account for our lives. There is a judgment day coming for us as believers. No, it's not the judgment <clears throat> that the world will face, where they stand and they face a judgment for their sins. For all who believe, the judgment for your sins happened to Jesus. He took your place. He took your sins. He paid that full penalty for those sins on the cross. God's wrath for your sin was poured out fully on Christ. And you will never face God's wrath for your sins. That is the wonderful love and grace of Jesus. But we will be called to account for how we live. For how we respond to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And Peter says that one day God will judge your lives. And he will do it impartially. God is not going to have any favorites on that day. God is not going to say, you know, I really like you. I know you didn't live such a good life. But that's okay. I'm going to give you all your rewards anyway. He's not going to say, well, you were a Sunday school teacher, so, well, I know you didn't have such a good life, but because you're a Sunday school teacher, I'm going to give you all your rewards anyway. No, he says, I'm going to judge you impartially according to how you lived. First uh, Corinthians, Paul talks of this, and he talks of our works being judged, and he said our works are like silver and gold, which it goes through a judgment fire, and it lasts. Or other works are like wood, hay, and stubble. And they go through that fire, they burn up, and it's lost. This judgment is determining how you've lived in order for how God is going to eternally reward you. You know, for all believers, heaven's going to be the same place for us. It's going to be wonderful. 
But heaven is not going to be the same experience for you. You right now, how you live for the Lord is determining your experience of heaven. Now God will be generous to us all. But God is allowing us to choose our eternal experience in heaven by how we live our lives now. Therefore, Peter says, live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear. Don't live for this world. Live as though you're a stranger for this world. Live in reverent fear with that judgment day in view. In other words, don't get cozy with this world and let it draw you off into its desires. Keep your focus on eternity and live for eternity. It's worth it because the benefits of how you live now are eternal. Now, a lot of Christians react to that word fear of God. It says reverent fear here. They would say, well, we don't fear God because Jesus bore God's wrath for us, and that's true. In that sense, we don't fear God, but Peter's talking about God's displeasure on the judgment day. For those who have lived for themselves, there will be sorrow and regret as they realize how frivolous their lives were, how meaningless and how they missed out on so much for all eternity. And we're to live in that kind of a fear of God's displeasure on that day. To help keep this in perspective, Peter tells us to remember the cost of our salvation, a cost that didn't come in silver or gold that was paid out for your salvation. It was a cost that came from Christ shedding his blood on the cross, an agonizing death for my sins. And the author of life has faced death for my sins. Now, if you understand the full extent of what it costs Christ, shouldn't that impact how you live today? That's what he's saying. You know, it's a grave insult to claim forgiveness that came at the cost of Jesus' life and yet not want to have anything to do with walking in obedience to Jesus. What you're saying, I want what you gain for me, but I don't want you. And Peter is saying, if you actually think about what it costs Christ, you're going to want Christ. That's what the gospel does. So I believed in Jesus. God the Father raised Jesus up from the grave and has glorified him. My hope and trust are in Jesus. And I need to keep this always in perspective in front of me to help me stay focused on living a God-honoring life. The fourth thing the gospel does for you, Peter says, is it impacts how we relate to each other. Peter says, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. This is a reality saying in your life. If you are born again, this is reality. This is a spiritual change that God has begun in your life. You've purified yourself by obeying the truth so you have a sincere love for your brothers. Then he says, now put it into practice. Love one another deeply from the heart. The gospel cannot make that change in your life without it being carried out in practice. Love is a defining mark or evidence of the gospel's work in a person's life. Jesus said this is how others are going to know that we're his disciples. People should look at us and the first thing they think of is how much we love each other. 
I served once in a church where the church was at war with the community. They were at war with each other. People weren't begging to be a part of that church. That community had many people who had one time been part of that church and were no longer attending. But God did a purifying work, and they changed. And people began to ask us, Don, what's happening at the church? What do you mean? Why? Well, they used to hate each other. Now they love each other. What's going on there? You know, the first thing that that church came to be the place where the first thing that people thought of when they thought of that church was how much they loved each other. And when it came to that place, people began to want to be in. And people began attending that hadn't attended for years. Fifth thing the gospel does is it changes our desires. First Peter 2, starting verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted the Lord is good. The gospel changes our cravings. If God's word is so effective and so powerful in our lives, then it ought to control our thoughts and desires. It ought to be consuming our thinking. Now, a set of babies, they do three things. They eat, they fill their diapers, and they sleep. Peter appeals to that picture of a baby here. When a baby wants to eat, all other thoughts are gone from its mind. It wants milk now and not a few minutes from now, right now. And it's going to fuss and scream until it gets it. Nothing else will do. You can distract it for a little bit. But in moments, it's back screaming for that milk. It's craving that milk. And he's saying like newborn babies, young babies that just crave that. We're to crave that spiritual milk of God's word. Our desire for growth and our salvation, our desire for Christ ought to be so great that we have that intense desire to be in God's word. A desire that's just as intense as that baby's desire is for milk says, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. You know, the more we experience God's word, the more we experience Jesus and we grow in our relationship and we taste his goodness, the more we should just crave of it, desire it. If we don't crave it, then I want to suggest to you that perhaps you've been feasting too much on what this world is and not feasting enough on the goodness of God. You know, so many people, they want instantaneous change. I've been asked so many times, you know, pray for me that I'll be free from this, whatever it is, this habit or this sin. And they pray and it doesn't happen. And sometimes God does work a miracle in that way. Somebody prays, they ask God, and God just delivers them from an addiction or whatever. Sometimes that happens. But for the most part, growth comes from us craving the spiritual milk, craving God's goodness. And as we grow in that, we learn deliverance. We experience deliverance. So we need to be letting God's goodness change us 
And the result is this is going to leave you as a stranger in this world in your thinking and your desires and your actions. And Peter says, they're going to think it's strange, that you're strange. Because you don't pursue the things they do. You've been changed. The sixth thing, the last thing that Peter gives us is the gospel gives us purpose. And from four, chapter 2, 4 through 10, I don't have time to go into that. I'm going to just focus on verse 9 and 10. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you were, had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. The gospel, as it changes us, gives us purpose in life. God, he says, is building you into a spiritual house. He's building you into a royal priesthood. He's building you into a holy nation. You are a chosen people for the purpose of bringing him praises. The gospel gives you a purpose in life that will never fade, that will never disappoint. Not like the world. You are part of something so much bigger and greater than yourself. You have been chosen to be part of a God-sized eternal purpose. The story has often been told of Ernest Shackleton, who was the explorer to the Antarctica. And uh, the, according to the story, he posted this ad before uh, one of his expeditions. And the ad read this way. Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, Bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. And according to the story, around 5,000 people responded to the ad. Now the ad could have happened. We don't know that it didn't happen, but we now realize that likely he didn't place the ad. That was a story that came later afterwards. But the story does illustrate a truth. We are born with that innate desire to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. God has chosen you to be a royal priesthood, a spiritual house, a holy nation, to declare his praises. That is worth sacrificing for. That's worth pursuing above all things. You belong to something that is grand, grander than anything else in this world or that this world has ever seen. You are a part of that. So with all those thoughts, with the changes that the gospel brings to us, here's the practical application that Peter leaves us with. Verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Here's the end result. If you're having all those other things lived out in your life, this is the end result of it. You will live as a stranger in this world, abstaining from the evil desires that wage war against your soul. The gospel will lead you to living such a good life that even if the world hates you, they're going to recognize, recognize how the gospel's changed you. A change so great that even though they hate us because of Jesus, even though they accuse us of doing wrong, they can't help but recognize the good fruit that comes from the gospel. 
Now I want to finish with two stories here. This first story is a story I heard years ago between a Muslim man and a Christian man. And in the conversation, the Muslim told the Christian, he said, you know, one day Islam is going to conquer Christianity. And the Christian said, well, how can you be so sure of that? And the Muslim man said, it's this way. And he drew a circle and he put a dot in the middle of the circle. And he said, that circle is my life. Everything is contained. The dot in the middle is my faith. My faith is at the center of my life and it controls everything about my life. But here's you Christians. He puts a dot there and he says, that's your life. And then he draws lines out. Here's your job. Here's your house. Here's your faith. They're all just different compartments. And your life controls each of them, even your faith. And because of that, he says, we will conquer you. Because our faith controls everything in our life. Sadly, that is true of so many Christians. It shouldn't be. We should be the ones with that circle and that dot in the center. Because the gospel, if it's at the center of our lives, it will impact everything in our lives. Again, years ago, I heard the story of a missionary and an anthropologist, and the anthropologist had come to study the culture of the people group that the missionary was serving. And one day, they were sitting outside the missionary's house, talking together, and a man passed them on the road, leading a donkey, laden down with produce just out the marketplace. The man was well-dressed and obviously prosperous, according to their standards. And so the anthropologist... <clears throat> He pointed the man out to the missionary and said, there's an example of why people do not need missionaries, why they do not need the gospel. Look at him. He's well-to-do, obviously doing very well. He doesn't need to be changed. And the missionary said, actually, he's an example of why we need the gospel. Before he was a Christian, he was an alcoholic. He did little or no work. He made his wife work. He drank away all of her earnings. He beat his wife, his children were half-starved, improperly clothed, and they lived in a run-down shack. The difference that the gospel has made in his life is that he now loves his wife, he honors her, he works hard, they've moved into a better house, his children are thriving, he's a totally changed man. That story illustrates what Peter's trying to tell us this morning. When you come to the gospel, the gospel will 